This is a recording of a Bible study given at the chapter of the opened book under the covering title The Pre-Roma and is number three of the new series which is based upon the book of Exodus. It is our custom in these meetings to read a portion of scripture together. So if you who are listening to this recording care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read with us the first chapter of the Gospel according to John. It's obvious that we have been reading this first chapter of John's Gospel because this introduces us to him in that most wonderful character, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. It was the essence of John the Baptist's ministry, not only that he should preach repentance because the kingdom of heaven was at hand, but also the Lamb of God had come to take away the sin of the world. Before we close the book and open it at another passage, you might notice that in the beginning he was the Word, and John the Baptist, who was nine months older than his cousin, John the Baptist said, he was before me. That's one testimony. Then the Word became flesh, and John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. That's why he became flesh. Hebrews tells us that sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. So here he was, set forth as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. It's also interesting, from another angle, to see a little testimony about true service. What is the outstanding title of Christ in the beginning of John's Gospel? The Word. What did John the Baptist say he was? He said, I'm a voice. Isn't that splendid? He said, if Christ is the Word, let me be the voice. And later on, if Christ is the light, John the Baptist was a lamb. Well, you can go and fill that in, you see. Whatever Christ is, witness is only taking of the things of Christ in your limited capacity, passing it on to others. They were trying to find out who he was, Elijah, or this great prophet that was coming, and whatnot. He said, no, no, I'm a voice. He's the word. And then, once more, when our Saviour was questioned, he didn't argue with them, he said, come and see. And presently, when Nathaniel was questioning Philip, he said, come and see. Not a bad thing to notice how the Saviour deals with people and then seek to put it into practice yourself. Well, our subject is not John's Gospel. Our subject is him who fills John's Gospel and the whole of the Bible from beginning to end with his glory. So shall we now turn to the twelfth chapter of the book of Exodus and concentrate our attention upon this great uh, moment that has come in the history of Israel and in the history of redemption, the Passover land. You will remember that when we started this series dealing with Exodus as a part of our subject, of the working out of the fullness, that we demonstrated by a number of passages of scripture that the descent of Israel down into Egypt and the ascent of Israel out again was following the pattern of the ages. That it doesn't matter whether you were chosen before the foundation of the world and destined ultimately to be in heavenly places, you don't go straight there, you go down. You find yourself brought into this world in Adam, needing a redeemer. And so this people of Israel are in many senses typical of the ways of God with men. And that leads me to speak about types. There are some who can see types where others do not see them. And we've got to be watchful that we don't invent them. But we're on very safe ground here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, after speaking about crossing the Red Sea, and after speaking about the uh, coming of the manna, and the striking of the rock, and the bringing out water in the wilderness, he said all these things happened unto them as examples. And then, more specifically, in the same epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 5, he said, even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So here we've got specific warrant from the New Testament. We don't need it because it's so obvious. But there it is, that Christ is our Passover. And if he's our Passover, then we were in bondage, needing a, a redeemer, 
And we are redeemed by the shedding of blood, for that is incipient in the story. So if I turn you back again, only in mind, to the opening chapter of Ephesians, you have in verse 7, in whom we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and that word forgiveness, aphesis, means to set a captive free. That's what was happening. And then at the other end of the book of Exodus, we have the atoning sacrifice, which has to do with the tabernacle, not delivering you from Egypt, but opening a way into the presence of God. So in Ephesians 2, we have, after we have been said to be by nature far off, without God and without Christ, but now, in Christ Jesus, ye that were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So the blood of Christ in Ephesians 1 is a Passover, and the blood of Christ in Ephesians 2 is the atoning sacrifice at the door of the tabernacle, in time. So that we have, ought to rejoice to think that these wonderful doctrines, which none of us could ever encompass in this life fully to understand, are nevertheless set forth in type and shadow, so that you can even speak to a little Sunday school about them, and they can in measure comprehend. The Passover is the climax of the first section of this Exodus in this sense, that God had sent Moses to Pharaoh and told him that the time had come, let my firstborn go. He called Israel his firstborn. They were not the first nation on the earth, obviously. But there were many nations mentioned in Genesis 10, before there was even an Israelite living. So a firstborn is not the first to be born. It's the first one that God appoints. And God appointed this nation to be his firstborn on the earth. So that when Paul was enumerating the advantages of being a Jew, he said, to them pertaineth the adoption. That gives them the firstborn's position. Not by birth, but by adoption. By a legal process appointing them to that particular I honour. And then he said to Pharaoh, if you do not let my firstborn go, I must touch your firstborn. Now that's absolutely law. But you've got to watch that you don't criticise the law of God. Because there are some people, if they even hear the words, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, they say, oh, that's barbaric. But you listen to them when they go to the butcher. And he only gives them 14 ounces to a pound. They don't think it's barbaric to say, oh no, 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 16 ounces to a pound, please. That's only an eye for an eye. There's nothing barbaric about an eye for an eye. It's absolute, even-handed justice. If you want to mingle mercy with it, well, that's another question. But it's only God who can mingle mercy, not the person who's in debt. He can't talk about it. So he said to this Pharaoh, I want to spare your firstborn, Pharaoh. But if you don't let my firstborn go, you don't expect God to sit back and be thwarted and say, well, dear, oh dear, what can I do now? He said, I'll touch your firstborn. So that if, as we watch the dreadful plagues that fall one after another, nine of them, they've all got a touch of mercy about them. Because they were holding back the one thing that God said he would do ultimately. And so Pharaoh continually didn't. When he was under the effect of a plague, he was going to let them go. And when the plague was lifted, he was sorry he said so. And there came a time when it was too late. Too late. And the moment had come. Dreadful night in Egypt. A day of deliverance for the people of Israel. So we're going to look at Exodus 12 to get that more or less opened out for us this evening by his grace. The first verse, oh, first of all, we'll look at the analysis of it, the first 20 verses, which are on this chart. The first verse introduces it, and then the opening subject is a definite period of time. This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. And at the end of the story, we have, um, in verses 18 to 20, your attention drawn to the first month on the 14th day of the month. It ends, as it begins, with a specific reference to the first month. We'll look at that again in a moment. 
the Passover itself occupies verses 3 to 11. The lamb is brought, the lamb is tested, the lamb is offered, and the blood is sprinkled. And then we have the consequence, God's promise, I will pass over you. Then we come to the sequence, the unleavened bread. Now, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he said, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Not with the unleavened bread, not of leavened bread of wickedness and malice, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, you cannot redeem yourself by anything you do, but the moment you're redeemed, God expects a change in your character. Unleavened bread is that which is like the Lord's own comment on the panel. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Not that we say the panel was sinless, but evidently he was a very honourable character. So, we are not saved by putting unleavened bread on the doorpost. We're not saved by exhibiting to the world or to angels or to men that we leave a, a lead, lead a fairly clean, spotless life. If you think that's so, listen to one man who could even be inspired to write about himself touching the righteous requirements of the law, blameless. That's Paul the Pharisee. Yet that man crumpled. That man cast it aside as something worthless that he may be found in Christ. So we have the two sides exhibited in this Passover story. Redemption by nothing else except the blood of the Lamb. And then, when you're delivered, you become a child of God and there should be an exhibition of the change that grace has wrought. And then he says, not only I will pass over you, but it balances, I brought you out this day. Well now we come back then to look at this emphasis upon the time period. At first you may look at it and think, well it's not very important. Anything that happens in this world must happen at some time or another. That's one of the things you cannot avoid, the incidence of time and space. As Shakespeare puts it, once when time and space or place did not adhere, you would make both adhere. Time and place adhere. If you can think of anything that's happening at a certain time but happening nowhere, uh, well, you're well on the way to be a philosopher, I think. But I don't know whether you've been any earthly use, of course. So why this insistence upon the time here? Oh, it's got a tremendous lesson, friends. Let's read it now. We didn't read it just now. We will now. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Notice the words, to you. Because it wouldn't be reasonable, would it, for anyone to stand up on the 1st of January in this chapel and say, Beloved friends, this is the first of the year to you. That's asking for somebody in the chapel to say, Well, what about you then? You see, Moses is telling the people there's a drastic change taking place. Now, I suppose you all know that the year begins, Jewish year begins, about the end of September in our country, end of September, beginning of October, just according to the way the moon comes, and that is called the Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. And if you live in a Jewish quarter, you'll still see in the little shops, little cards, highly coloured, all wishing one another Mosel Tov, good luck, because it's a new year. Their new year had started six months earlier, while they were in Egypt. And then said Moses, you're going out tonight. This is a brand new beginning. This month is the beginning of months to you. So Israel have two new years. They have their civil new year, and they have their ecclesiastical new year, six months afterwards. Well, you can say, well, they're not the only ones. I'm not going to tell you the date of my birthday because 
I'm not asking you to start giving me presents. But my birthday is in April. One birthday. And how far am I away from my other birthday in November? About six months, aren't I? Gets very near to this. Two birthdays in one year. One entering into this life, the other entering into that. And so, our first lesson is this. That rebirth, conversion, salvation, they do not begin anywhere else except at the foot of the cross which is symbolised by the Passover. There are those, we respect them, but we don't think they're right, who feel that if they take their little baby to a church and the priest or the minister goes to the christening service, they breathe a, breathe a sigh of relief and oh well now, they're fit for, they're all right for heaven now if they've done that. I've met people who are most outrageous in their attitude to life. No place for God in their life. But to think of not having their baby christened, outrageous. Who oh, I've seen it. Well, that's an element of superstition. I was christened, and then later when I grew up and be, became a believer, I was immersed. And then afterwards, I discovered there was a meaning in baptism which neither christening nor immersion could give me. I don't know whether I've, I've sort of done everything so that whatever turns out to be right, I, I haven't done it that way. Because my father, who was an unbeliever at the time, he said he knew quite a number of people who lost a good job because they hadn't been christened and he didn't believe a word about it, but he had me christened. But I never got the good job, friend, so there it was. I'll give him credit, though, for looking after me so far as his light went. So will you remember when you're thinking about this, this is the beginning. And when you're talking to somebody else about salvation, this is the beginning. Or you want to go through a baptism yet when you follow these people to the Red Sea, but that wasn't the beginning. Oh no, baptism comes afterwards through the Red Sea. They're already a redeemed people by the time they go through the Red Sea. And the other people who were not redeemed never crossed it. They sunk in its waters. So there's that story. Well now, after the emphasis upon the first month comes the focus upon the thing that matters most, this sacrificial lamb. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, in the tenth day of this month, now the tenth day of the month is when they were told to take the lamb. The fourteenth day of the month is when they were told to offer it. So they had it for four or five days. Because if you, if you, uh, went to the extremes that you had, you have five days. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Now why was that length of time? In the tenth day of this month, they should take to end every man a lamb. Why on the tenth? Well, human nature is very, very much expressed in the people of Israel, as you know, perhaps by dealing with them, by meeting them. And there would always be the tendency to say, well, why waste a good lamb when it's only a type and a shadow, a symbol, and they'd offer the poor of the flock, the one that wasn't quite sound. But God said, oh no, oh no. Isn't it wonderful that before ever there was a lamb in existence, so far as we know? At any rate, before Adam's world came into existence, and all the animal creation that he ruled over, Christ is said to have been foreordained before the foundation of the world as a lamb without blemish. Well, that must be. If once we can put our finger upon the Christ of God and say, There! He failed and slipped. We've imperiled our salvation. If he was not holy and undefiled and separate from sinners, he could never have borne the sin of the world. Even the high priest of Israel was a problem 
I'm not going to say a problem before God because God has infinite wisdom. But it was a problem. How is a sinful high priest going into the holiest of all with the blood of the day of atonement for the sins of Israel? How is he going to get into there without exposing himself to judgment? So he had to go in with a cloud of incense and he had to offer for his own sins first before he offered for the sins of the people. And by the very fact that he offered for his own sins first shows that he was ultimately no good. He was only a type and a failing type. Christ never had to confess a sin. Christ never had to offer a sacrifice for himself. He bore our sins in his own body. And that's what we have here. So, the tenth day of the month. Now, when you look at this chart, and notice a little bit further down, where it says in Luke 23, this was carried out, very literally, I don't say they took him on the tenth day of the month, and offered him on the fourteenth, but they did the very same thing. They examined him, to see whether there was any fault in him. Let's listen to the Roman governor. And he had a tremendous pressure put upon him for that man was a guilty man, Pilate. And they had been before him embassies, embassies sent from Jerusalem to Rome that had got Roman governors into desperate peril. And he didn't want any Jews going to Rome complaining about him. And even so, he came out to the people and said, I find no fault with this just man. Pilate is obliged to give evidence that that lamb on that Passover was without blemish. Then you remember that somebody remarked about somewhere where Christ had been speaking and Pilate jumped to the idea. Oh, he said, that puts him out of my jurisdiction. He comes under the jurisdiction of Herod. Oh, you must send him to him. That's a legal idea straight away, isn't it? He got rid of him, as he thought. And Herod, he examined him, and sent him back again. He said, I find nothing worthy of death in this man. So it's true that he examined the Lamb of God, and their verdict is no blemish. And then, when he was crucified, in spite of it all, hanging there between two thieves, one of them railed on him. But the other said to him, We are being punished righteously for our own sins, but this man hath done nothing amiss. So there's three. And then you have the centurion who pierced his side and saw the blood and water which broke, indicated death by a broken heart. And somehow or the other, there was a conviction came over that Gentile. He said, of a truth, this was a righteous man. And to add to it, Pilate's wife came to him and she said, see what you do with that man. I've suffered much in a dream concerning him. So you have at least five who bore their testimony that the great Passover lamb, Christ himself, was indeed without blemish. So that's where we've got in the middle of verse 3. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb. Now, you notice I've put on the chart, A lamb, the lamb, your lamb. And that's suggestive, isn't it? First of all, in verse 3, a lamb. Then it is in verse 4, the lamb. Then it is in verse 5, your lamb. And I believe there's a little thought there that we can take to ourselves. It is certainly true that a number of people will believe that Christ is a saviour. And they then speak about Confucius and Buddha, and uh, try to browbeat you by the immensity of their knowledge of other religions. 
So it's a good thing sometimes know a little bit about it and prick their bubble because they don't know very often. A saviour. But you know, there's something about Christ that cannot tolerate comparison with others. You cannot go up to, up to Christ and say, Yes, Lord, I believe that thou art one of many saviours. Read Isaiah 45. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. A just God and a saviour. There is none else. Except the Lord. Beside me. Cannot be. So we have to move from a saviour to the lamb. Not merely a lamb. The lamb. Oh, that's better. This is preeminence. This is one lamb separated from all the rest. This is one redeemer separated from all others who may lay claim to it. We now recognise that he is the lamb of God. But isn't it precious to go one stage further and to say with the Apostle Paul, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And to be able to say with Job, I know that my Redeemer, living. Your lamb. Your lamb. Whether that was the intention of Moses writing this is another question. We don't want to overdo it, but it's suggestive, isn't it? Your lamb shall be without blemish. Verse 5. A male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And that's what some of us have not thought about. We think so much of the lamb as from the sheep that we forget that it may be a covering title for a kid of the goats. It is usually a lamb in our sense of the word, but it could be a kid of the goats. And I think there's a little something to be kept in mind when you get to that terrible passage in Matthew 25. When the Lord shall sit upon the throne of his glory and all the nations are judged by him, he judges them as a shepherd does his sheep and goats. They both belong to him. Although that may be another story for us. Now we are told that after having this examination, he shall keep it up. Oh, it, that's the lamb, is one more. I've got it there at the end. A lamb, the lamb, your lamb? How many lambs? One for every household. How many household? Thousands of them. Don't know exactly. Thousands of lambs to be offered that night. And by the time Moses is done writing, he's forgotten all about the thousands and he's looking down like Abraham. Rejoice to see my day, said Christ. You know the first occurrence of a lamb in the scripture? Well, I've told you, haven't I? Genesis 22. And it comes from the mouth of Isaac. Isaac said to his father, Behold, my father, here is the wood. Here is the fire. Where is the lamb? That didn't tear the heart of that father. I don't know what did. But he got so far as to say, My son, God himself will provide a lamb. And he did. He did it in symbol on that mountain and Isaac was spared he did it presently in the Passover and Israel was spared. He did it ultimately when he spared not his own son and he was the lamb. So it. Now it's not every household killing their particular lamb. It's the whole congregation of Israel shall kill it. So the words are almost suggesting that while you're thinking of your own individual lamb in your own individual house, do remember it means more than that. Because the scripture is going to be written presently. It is impossible that the blood of bulls or of goats or of lambs or any other of these offerings could take away sin. So we have the type and the antitype coming before us in these verses. But you'll kill it in the evening. If you have a marginal reference in your Bible, you'll see that the words in the evening are between the two evenings. Now, what does it mean, between the two evenings? What we must remember is that Gentile reckoning of time now starts 
from midnight, from midnight to midnight. But that isn't the way in which the day started when God introduces the day to the scriptures. In the book of Genesis, the evening and the morning were the first day. So the day started in the evening. And to this very day we use the word eve, not as the day after, but the day before. I've never met anybody who got muddled up and went to work on Christmas Eve, thinking it was the day after. It's always the day before, isn't it? Or the eve of an election is just before. So we still use the word eve in the sense of before. Now, when you try to remember, the evening is the beginning of a Hebrew day. I've heard people say, look at these old Jews, what hypocrites they are. They're all opening their shops on the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath's over at sunset. They, open, they, they shut their shops on Friday, sunset, and went right through to Saturday, sunset, and then that's the next day. So when you imagine a shape like this, up, across, down, under, and up again, that's a Hebrew day. So the 14th day of the month started at sunset, which makes it possible for our Saviour to keep the Passover on the evening of the 14th, then be betrayed, tried, handed over to Pilate, and crucified on the afternoon of the same day. Now that's utterly impossible in a Gentile day. You couldn't keep the Passover on the evening of the same day that you were crucified in the afternoon, but you can with a Hebrew day. So long as that lamb was offered somewhere between the two evenings, it was on the 14th day of the month. And you see what a wise provision that was. If you've got thousands of people coming up to Jerusalem every year to keep the Passover, and every one of them have got to have their lamb slain at the temple by a priest, he couldn't do it in an hour. He couldn't do it in a half a day. He's got to have all the time that's possible and work very hard to get it all done within the time. But this, of course, is of use to us because it helps us to see that there are no discrepancies in the word. When we just were reading John's Gospel, one bit that I didn't mention, which I will now is, that when it says, they said to our Saviour, Rabbi, they stopped the story to tell you that that means Master. And when they said, we have found him, which is the Messiah, they stopped the story to tell you that that means the Christ. Now, do you mean to tell me that an ordinary Jew, in the days when Christ was here, wanted anybody to tell him what the word Rabbi meant? Did any Jew, look, the Samaritan woman, a poor, outcast sort of woman, she uses the word Messiah. Everybody knew the meaning of the word. It meant the Christ. Yet John tells us. Well, why does he tell us? Simply because he's writing his gospel for the great Gentile world who had to be told even those things. That's one of the proofs on the first page that John wrote for the world who did not know the things that an ordinary Jew knew from his cradle. So we have this people. Now we come back again to the story. Verse 7. And they shall take of the blood. They're going to eat the flesh in verse 8. They're going to have unleavened bread in verse 8. They're going to have bitter herbs in verse 8. But they're all in vain. They're all in vain. If they do not take the blood and sprinkle it on the doorpost. The mere eating of the sacrificial lamb the mere adding to it the bitter herbs as a symbol of the bitterness that from which they were now being delivered. All in vain. At the Passover, you remember, our Saviour took a piece of the matzah cake, the unleavened bread, dipped it in the sop and gave it to Judas. The sop was a mixture of fruits and other things that had a bitter taste. And it was to symbolise the mortar and the clay in which Israel had spent their days in bondage. That was put on the table. And we have here the bitterness, the bitter herbs. 
They also now, you know, in the Passover service, they put an egg. They're not allowed, of course. It's no use offering a, a lamb in this country. It must be at Jerusalem. So they have a Passover without the Lamb of God. Oh, what a picture of empty religion. Going through the whole thing and having to have a substitute instead. There's one prayer in the Jewish prayer book where they confess that they cannot offer to God the sacrifice according to the scriptures. So perhaps the blood that they lose by fasting may be taken in lieu of it. Or they take a male bird and wave it round their head and hope that that might be taken in lieu of it. But do you know as well as I do, nothing can be taken in lieu of it. Any preaching of the gospel so-called that bypasses the blood of the Passover lamb is not a gospel in harmony with the word of God. I've got here these three doors at the bottom of this chart, as you see. One of them has the sprinkled blood on the doorposts and nothing else. And nothing else is a part of the story. The hymn writer put it, didn't he say, nothing in my hand I bring. Nothing. I can, cannot bring anything to God. There it is. That's the way. But on either side we have Two other ways, which together form the way of Cain. Abel went through that middle door. He offered the sacrifice. And the epistle of the Hebrew says that the offering of Christ speaketh better things than the blood of Abel. Not only his own blood was shed, but he offered a sacrifice to accompany the gift that he brought. But Cain didn't. And the set, two sets of Paul's epistles deal with the things which have to do with those two doors. Over on that side, we've got the words of a Pharisee recorded for us in the Gospels. He's nailed on the door the words, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I promise this, I pray that, I go here, I do this. And God says, I never told you that that was a way of salvation. And the epistle to the Galatians and the epistle to the Romans stresses the utter inability of any man to be saved by his trying to observe the law of Moses. In fact, he says, the law was weak because of the flesh. So there, that, that door is closed to us. We come this side and it says, cultured people live here. Please do not be offensive. D-P-H. That's Doctor of Philosophy. And those cultured people are very nice people to meet. Very inoffensive people in many ways. Until you touch this thing. And that reveals where they are. They will not have the blood of Christ. Why be offensive, they say. That's a barbaric thing. They speak about the Beatitudes. I think it was of some of those people, I mentioned this before, that the late Bishop of Durham, he said he had sometimes to ordain as priests in the Church of England, a man who evidently came from London, and said, praise him for his grace and favour. He said, I'd sooner have a man like that than the man who said, Freezing for his grease and fever. Culture. Oh, it can be a damning, deadly thing. And Paul wrote his epistle to the Colossians. Let no man deceive you by philosophy. Not after Christ. The wisdom of this world is foolish with God. So there's only one way, and that's the way. The blood-sprinkled doorpost. But notice, none at the foot. He warned the Hebrews that those who trampled underfoot the blood of Christ were in a desperate place. That is not merely failing to observe it, but that's beginning to trample it underfoot, which is another attitude altogether. Then it says in verse 11, Thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, 
Je staat in je hand. Is niet in heist. And that's about the only time that I think the scripture ever tells you to eat your food in haste. But it's very bad for your digestion. But that is not in view here. In the ordinary way they would have their loins ungirded. In the ordinary way they would not have their shoes on their feet. You remember when our Saviour took the Passover? Or when our Saviour reclined rather at the supper? Mary was able to anoint his feet. And scarf in your head. Why? Why all this? The moment you have this position as yours, you become a pilgrim. You become somebody who's already going to leave. You cannot become a believer in Christ and find here your continuing city. You now immediately have your face turned, as the book of Numbers says, to the sun rising and you've started on a journey. So here they are. It is the Lord's Passover. Now we look at the word Passover itself. Oh, first of all, our Savior, uh, the, the Lord says in verse 13, the blood shall be to you for a token. There are quite a number of tokens mentioned in Scripture. You read in Genesis 1.14, that the stars were for signs and for seasons, for tokens. They are to indicate something. You read that God said he would set a mark for Cain, a token of his protection from attack from others. God said to Noah, I will put my ark, my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a token that I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. And here he says, the blood is a token. So you see, the efficacy of the blood was not in the blood itself, but what it stood for. Now, what does it stand for? Leviticus gives you a lot of statements concerning meat and unclean animals which are to be avoided and so on. And among other things, it lays down very, very strongly that no Hebrew must take blood in his diet. And so to this day, an Orthodox Jew, he goes to the the um, butcher that exhibits a sign in his shop that the meat, kosher meat, has been slain and has a little lead tablet on it from the Shekita board that the blood has been drained from the animal. Of course that was hygienic. If there's going to be disease in an animal, it's more likely to be in the bloodstream than anywhere else. But it had a symbolic meaning too. Because Leviticus 17 says, oh perhaps we better look at that, shall we? You've been rather lazy this evening, I've been helping you in that direction, I know. But we'll look at one passage. Leviticus 17, it's so important to see it. Verse 10. And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood, and will cut him off from among his people. Why? For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar, to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Now I'm going back again. For the soul, same word, the soul of the flesh is in the blood. And it's even said in Isaiah 53 of our Saviour, he poured out his soul unto death. And the life blood is the vehicle of the soul. Now if you've got other ideas about the soul, you have a difficulty about it. But if you take that the scripture says, you won't. It's just the life principle. So here we have it now. I've given that blood as a token. It's life blood. It's life laid down. For the wages of sin has been, always will be, wages of sin is death. 
and shed blood is the exhibition of death. Life laid down. Christ didn't die of disease or of old age. He was offered as a sacrifice. His blood was shed. Now we'll take the word Passover. You notice on this chart, the last line, I've spelled it Pausover. P-A-U-S-E-O-V-E-R. Well, that, I'm not suggesting that you should alter it. I'm only asking you to consider. Because our English word Passover suggests to the mind of going over like that and leaving you. Whereas, it says here in this um, verse 23, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. But when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side boasts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in. Now if to pass over the door means to pass over it and leave it and go somewhere else, it doesn't quite follow. So should we look at this word in the way in which it is used elsewhere? First of Kings, the 18th chapter, verse 21. The first of Kings, the 18th chapter, verse 21. This gives you another translation of the word Passover. This is to do with Elijah on Mount Carmel. And he says to them in verse 21, And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now what's the word Passover there in that verse? Halt. Hover. How long halt you between two opinions? Not pass over, pause over. Hover. See? In the same chapter, verse 26. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning even unto noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. Margin, they leaped up and down at the altar. Passover. In one chapter, the word Passover comes twice. And it means to hover, to hesitate, never to pass over and leave. Now we do get another illustration from Isaiah 31. Isaiah 31. Verse 5. As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also he will deliver it, and passing over, he will preserve it. Now the figure of a bird scurrying up its nest, spreading aboard its wings, protecting its young, is found in a number of passages. Even Christ himself refers to the same figure, do you remember? It doesn't, a bird doesn't pass over and leave its nest. It spreads its wings and hovers over or protects. Now that's the figure to keep in mind. So many a time in the Psalms and elsewhere, when you take refuge under the outstretched wing of the Almighty, here it is, it's got that in it. He spread out his wing in Egypt because the blood was there. And the destroying angel couldn't touch anyone inside. It's a suggestive thought, isn't it? That when you come back and you read there was not a house, not a house in Egypt where there was not one dead, that it was true. But you say, oh no. Yes, friends. The only difference is this. It was either a lamb or a man. In the house of Israel it was a lamb. In the house of Egypt, the firstborn. It's one or the other, friends. But death was there, either in the substitute, the lamb, or in the individual himself. Now before we come to a finish, I'm going to ask Mrs. Elson to play you the first part of a 
music associated with the Passover, and then she will bring the book over to me, and I will read you the words. It may be just a little bit of interest to you at the end of this meeting. It's a solemn little piece. Imagine the Passover and perhaps long bearded, very patriarchal folk standing round and singing these words to that tune. It goes on and gradually builds up, but this is the way in which the last I haven't been able to spare the time and I don't think it was necessary, but listen to these words. Then came the Holy One, blessed be He, and destroyed the angel of death who slew the slaughterer, who killed the ox, which drank the water, which quenched the fire, which burned the stick, which bit the dog, which bit the cat, which ate the kid, which the father bought for two zoos in, the only kid, the only kid. You say, do you need to tell me that at a Passover feast, they all solemnly sing the house that Jack built? That's the house that Jack built. That's the origin of the nursery story, the house that Jack built. But what's it all mean? If you lived all your lives as the Jews had, under oppressors and spies, you couldn't have stood up at a Passover feast and said, Egypt and Babylon and Nineveh and Rome, you call them the cat and the dog and all the others, but they know who they meant. See, the cat and the dog and all these others that come right the way down, they were their oppressors. But they never said it. Just that little camouflage. And they go right on until the Holy One, blessed be He, destroyed the angel of death that slew the slaughter and so on. I thought that perhaps you might like to know just that little bit. I don't say that it's any incipient part of the Passover, but it's still maintained to this day. The two outstanding uh, ceremonial days in Israel's year are the Passover on the month of Abib, the 14th, that's about our April, and the Day of Atonement, which is usually about the beginning of October. And they both focus attention upon the blood, the one that delivers out of bondage, the other that gives access into the presence of God. May we be glad that we know the significance of both. And may we, when we speak to others, preach a full Christ and a finished work and not leave the redeemed and forgiven sinner wandering about outside but assure him that the way has been made into the presence of God by this reconciliation which has been accomplished.